0: Cancer Advances, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals, exploring the latest innovative research and clinical advances in the field of oncology. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cancer Advances. I'm your host, Dr. Dale Shepard, a medical oncologist here at Cleveland Clinic, overseeing our toxic phase one and sarcoma programs. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Anthony Vizzioni, a surgical oncologist at Cleveland Clinic, Akron General. He's here today to talk to us about upcoming clinical trials and trends in the care of patients with melanoma. So welcome, Anthony. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm uh, excited to talk a little bit about a topic that I kind of feel a little passionate about. Excellent. So maybe to start out, you can give us a little background on your role here at Cleveland Clinic. So as you mentioned,
1: I'm a surgical oncologist. So generally speaking, my practice is fairly broad. I treat a lot of complex gastrointestinal and other types of malignancies kind of across the spectrum. And obviously one of those focuses on cutaneous malignancies and melanoma. So I got an interest in this actually going back as far as my residency, where I did uh, research in immunotherapy of melanoma back when I was a junior resident I kind of carried that interest forward. So that's a little bit uh, about kind of where I started from to get to where I am now.
0: So from a surgical standpoint, what do you see in terms of the the current management of melanoma? What uh, what do you find exciting? Let's just jump into to what do you what do you find most exciting about surgical management of melanoma right now? We hear a lot about immunotherapies and things, but yeah, you know, we'll talk about how maybe that ties in, but from a surgical side, what what do you see? Let's say
1: there's kind of been a pretty big shift in melanoma surgical care recently. So to take you back a little bit, um, you know, the standard of care for melanoma uh, for early stage non-metastatic melanomas has been a wide local excision. And then staging with a sentinel lymph node biopsy has been really established since, you know, the 1990s or so. And that's kind of been the standard of care for a long time. The uh, implications of a positive lymph node, a positive sentinel lymph node have usually meant that we would go on to perform a completion lymph node dissection in the affected basin. And so for decades, we would be offering patients completion lymph node dissections pretty routinely. A lot of times patients uh, didn't want to go through with this, quite frankly. So even at the the timeframe where this was the standard of care, it was probably only done about 60% of the time patients would really defer it. And the reasoning is usually because about 80% of the time we did these operations, there was no residual melanoma in the lymph node basin. So a lot of times we weren't seeing that that benefit from the disease being present. And it comes with some morbidity, uh, particularly lymphedema and affected extremities. And and that can be quite debilitating to the patients who have it. So this kind of prompted uh, some studies that were done and actually just recently published, um, most notably a study called the MSLT2 trial, which was published in 2017-18 and really kind of quite frankly it was a big paradigm shift for our, our care and more or less the punchline of the trial says that if we take a patient with a positive sentinel lymph node and observe them or go ahead and do a completion lymph node dissection there's really no difference in their survival and I think that this goes to show a little bit of the fundamental lack of understanding we truly have about the biologies of cancers. And when we're gaining traction and learning so much more, but just because you have disease in a lymph node doesn't mean it's going to affect your overall survival. And that's really changed how we approach melanoma care today from a surgery
0: perspective. So with the were there, uh, just back to that sort of trial, were there any subsets of, of patients that we still would say, you know, certain characteristics, your primary tumor, we're still going to move forward with lymph node dissection? And is that easier or more difficult to sell now to a patient?
1: Yeah, it's a great question because this is a trial that I feel like the surgical oncology community and the melanoma community really embraced and shifted our care. But we do find nuance to it. we do find some uh, discussion points with patients because I think it's important not to just do a wholesale blanket Uh, pattern of care to say you don't need it anymore so i still do have a fairly nuanced discussion with my patients so one of the particular subsets that we are concerned about is head and neck melanomas those in general have kind of in the past been shown to be a little bit worse off actors and in particular lymph node recurrence in the head and neck area can be a little bit of a different uh biologic beast so to speak we don't see lymphedema in the head and neck quite frankly that's not something that occurs as much and the morbidity of those dissections can be different we worry about nerve injuries maybe a little bit more but in an experienced hand that's pretty minimal so what we really worry about in the head and neck region is actually loss of control if we have a local recurrence in the neck we worry about the major vessels or nerves in that area and how they may be affected and that would be different than like the groin or the axilla where we do worry about a loss of local control, but it's much more salvageable. So we do have a little bit more of a nuanced discussion with patients, particularly in the head and neck field. It still was included in the trial. So the trial did not stratify by any particular region. So I think it's it's fair to have a patient select to not have that you know, completion lymph node dissection and just go uh, with observation but we do observe them very closely. I do nodal ultrasound on them every four months, and we really keep a very close eye to make sure we don't have any of that loss
0: of local control. We had a previous episode of this uh, Cancer Advances podcast. We talked to Dr. Schwartz about lymphedema and management. And um, Do you find that you work with the, the plastic surgeons and the guys doing lymphedema work um, on those patients that you do still do lymph node dissections?
1: I absolutely do. So. Uh, I'm very proactive about really getting plastic surgery involved very early on their care and really trying to kind of manage lymphedema with that, you know, ounce of prevention. So the more we can have that be a controlled problem or a problem that we avoid completely, the better off that patient's going to be in
0: the back end because it can be quite a debilitating disease. Now you mentioned head and neck being sort of its own characteristics. Patients, of course, get treated at A variety of different settings here on our main campus akron general where you're at the community Um, are there particular patients that you think really should see you who kind of have a more of an interest in those kinds of nuances is there a particular subset of patients that that you really kind of want to make sure everyone sends your way
1: well just from my training my background and kind of my practice i i do treat kind of all melanoma so i will treat head and neck and kind of extremity, trunkal melanomas. Uh, you know, I, I know dermatologists are fairly facile and fairly comfortable treating some very early stage melanomas or in situ disease. But I will say there's really no patient who I, I don't think I, I can help or that we can benefit from. So even those early stage or insight to patients, I'm more than happy to see. I'm more than happy to work with obviously even metastatic melanoma patients who may actually have some surgical options, which we could even address a little bit too. Um, so it's kind of, I try and be as full service from a melanoma department as I can. Then there, obviously, there's some really particularly nuanced ones that I really like to involve my colleagues with plastic surgery or head and neck surgery where ear canal melanomas, you know, uh, eyelid. Uh, that kind of is, I think, a very special and nuanced practice that I try and involve as many colleagues as I can to get
0: the best results. Now, in terms of that multidisciplinary um, sort of collaboration, how how have you adapted to working sort of in General, which for those listening, it's, it's a large hospital, but what, about an hour from our main campus? How, how do you coordinate uh, in, a, in a way with main campus and what, what does that sort of collaboration look like? Yes, I think from the
1: patient perspective, you know, their willingness to travel an hour up to main campus is sometimes limited. So most of the patients are coming from even an hour south of me. So what we try and do, I think, is I try and collaborate with main campus through our tumor boards. So for patients who have some nuanced uh, aspects of their disease, or we have some ambiguous findings that may be present, sometimes Melanoma pathology isn't always as straightforward as it seems. That's where our main campus cutaneous malignancy team is absolutely second to none. They're phenomenal. And so I kind of collaborate with them through that. And then a little bit offline, too, and just kind of our contact with each other to kind of run things by each other as well. And then we do have our medical oncologists down here who have some expertise in melanoma as well. And we do run kind of our more straightforward melanoma through our multidisciplinary tumor board here at Akron General.
0: What kind of research excites you right now? In the field of melanoma, and you mentioned the trial that kind of changed the way we think about sentinel nodes and lymph node dissections. What's what else is exciting from a field moving forward?
1: Yeah, so you know, kind of dovetailing off our discussion about multidisciplinary care, this I think is a really amazing time in melanoma care, where the individual trials that are happening potentially in surgery and within medical oncology really dovetail off of each other and kind of build new trials. So. If you go onto the NCI and look at melanoma trials, there's over 300 trials now happening in melanoma. And a lot of them, I think it's last time I counted is over 50 trials actually have to do with neoadjuvant treatments of melanoma. So patients who may have foregone a lymph node dissection and present with then a recurrence or patients who present with palpable lymph node disease and are going to need a therapeutic dissection, we're actually considering those patients for neoadjuvant therapies, either immune or targeted therapies, to see if we can increase those response, limit our surgical impact and our morbidity from surgery as well. And those are kind of ongoing trials around the country, and those are really exciting to me. There's also trials looking at, as we kind of see the great responses of adjuvant treatments for stage 3 melanomas we wonder how we can improve that response even more. So melanoma is a very straightforward disease, except when it's not. And there are several certain caveats to melanoma that are actually pretty interesting. And one of them is that high-risk stage 2 melanoma patients actually have worse outcomes than low-risk stage 3 melanoma patients. It's a very weird nuance of the disease. And so we're actually now studying and The Cleveland Clinic actually is part of this trial. It's a multinational institutional trial where we're looking at high risk stage two melanoma and treating those patients with adjuvant immunotherapy to see if they have a better overall survival. And those are really exciting
0: to me because I think we can really, truly do a lot of good impact on patients. Is there anything uh, new going on from a technique standpoint from uh, the way the surgeries actually uh, are being done?
1: Yeah, so there's a couple of things in particular that I do and that I find have been well-established but not as well-distributed, and I think that comes from a a comfort level. So one of the things that I think has been tried in, in the past and has been continually worked on is something called endoscopic lymph node dissection, so particularly in the inguinal lymph node region. One of the issues with doing a lymph node dissection in the inguinal region is a really significant rate of wound morbidity. So we do see about a 50% wound morbidity rate in the groin. So an endoscopic dissection really will limit that wound morbidity. It doesn't necessarily reduce our risk of lymphedema, but if we can reduce our risk of wound morbidity, then those patients can potentially get onto their adjuvant treatments even faster. So doing things endoscopically in an experienced hand, I think has the same outcome as doing it open. And that is, I think, an important caveat. You really have to know what you're doing with an endoscopic uh, surgery on these patients and have pretty nuanced touch with endoscopic techniques to do a really good lymph node dissection. So that's something I think that is becoming more comfortable advanced. It's something that we do down here at Akron General. Then there's some stuff that's as sacred as the margins of melanoma that even simple things like that we're still questioning. So there's another trial going on actually in Australia, which has the highest rates of melanoma in the world, so they can have enough patients to to figure this out. It's called the MEL-MART trial, where we're looking at the margins we take. So gosh, if you go back 40 years ago, we used to take a two-inch margin around melanoma. It's five centimeters. It's an incredibly morbid procedure to do to people. And that's now established where we really never need to take more than a two-centimeter margin we even question whether we need to do that so i'd say most of the patients that we operate on we can typically close their wounds primarily but if we can shrink that margin down even more then that would even allow us to do less free flaps or skin flaps and kind of even do more primary closures which in theory would have better outcomes so even something as sacred as our margin we're still questioning and seeing if we can improve
0: and i'm guessing if there's uh, sort of a thought that neoadjuvant shrinking things down and controlling things look successful then maybe that would shrink margins even more
1: yeah and that's a there's another trial that's going on that is looking at high risk thick melanomas and performing neoadjuvant treatment on those both to control potentially high risk metastatic disease and then yes to figure out do we need to do as wide of margins on these patients can we kind of contain that even more so i think as i said earlier the rolling kind of dovetail about how surgery and the medical oncology aspects of things inform each other is really fascinating. And I think very exciting because, you know, I, I would tell patients, you know, maybe five years ago when I saw them that the standard of care is kind of the standard of care. But now I kind of tell them in
0: five years I don't know what it's gonna be <laughs> truly because it is moving that fast. I'm gonna double back really quickly because you mentioned like in the inguinal notes doing endoscopic surgery. So for us non surgeons, maybe sure. to- to explain so we you know we, we're used to thinking about open surgeries or laparoscopic surgeries What what is an endoscopic surgery in a groin it's synonymous with laparoscopic surgery um
1: the only difference being you know laparoscopic truly is abdominal surgery uh endoscopic most people would think about flexible endoscopes but it's not quite that either so it it, it becomes a surgery where we don't have a name for it quite frankly so we Technically, what we often call it is a veil, aveila B-E-I-L, a video-assisted endoscopic inguinal lymphadenectomy, because everything has to have a fun acronym these days, right? So uh, this is a procedure where I use all of the equipment of a laparoscopic surgery, but instead of insufflating CO2 into the belly to develop a working space, I actually insufflate the thigh, and I can get enough working space to then dissect along the orders of a lymphadenectomy that we need to dissect and safely remove those lymph nodes off of the, the femoral vessels and to do what should be a very clean and a very thorough removal of those lymph nodes that would be
0: synonymous with an open surgery. And certainly when you do the inguinal nodes, you, we, we talked before about lymphedema and problems that happen. So you talked about the endoscopic surgery and the groin helping out from a wound perspective. Do we also get a similar benefit from a decrease in lymphedema?
1: No, and unfortunately we don't. And it's because of really the underlying etiology of that lymphedema is the trauma and the removal of the lymph nodes. So if you're doing the correct operation, unfortunately, you're going to have the same rates of lymphedema. Uh, But that being said, when you have decreased wound complications, it could get patients on to faster treatment for lymphedema if they need to to have bypasses or lymphatic venous bypasses. Those things can be generated a little bit quicker, hopefully. And just not having those wounds is just from a patient perspective, much easier to deal with and kind of increases the satisfaction from that
0: perspective as well. That's great. Are there any uh, advances in imaging, for instance, or any other areas that help you out from a surgical standpoint?
1: Yeah. So one of the hallmarks of melanoma has been probably still always will be lymphocentigraphy. So uh sentinel node biopsy is pretty well known, particularly in the, in the field of breast cancer. Breast cancer, generally speaking, can only go to your axilla. So we don't have to do preoperative imaging to, de- to identify our lymph node basins. But in melanoma, that's pretty well required. So what's interesting, though, is as we're kind of learning new techniques about identifying lymph nodes, one of the things that actually some of the work done here at um, Cleveland Clinic has shown is injection of a, a tracer called indocyanine green. And using near-infrared light can identify those lymph nodes quite well in the operating room after lymphocentigraphy. And that may actually provide better staging for patients because we can see the lymph nodes better, more accurately dissect them, potentially reduce the risk of outside trauma around those as well. So I think that's something that I think will be gaining traction, not just here, I have an interest in, I know Dr. Gassman at the main campus has an interest in, but particularly around the country, I feel like that's an area that even something as fundamental as a sentinel lymph node
0: biopsy may see some changes. So lots of changes, changes in imaging, changes in where we use our systemic therapies, surgical techniques, lots of exciting things going on. What else is out there? What's the biggest gap? So when you think about how you treat patients, what's the biggest thing you'd like to be the next thing to change? What's the biggest barrier to progress?
1: Yeah, I think that's a brilliant question because I think there is a a fairly looming gap. And it's something as fundamental as better stratifying these techniques and these uh, pathways of care. So melanoma, as I kind of mentioned earlier, is a very straightforward disease, but there's so many curveballs to it. So it is a disease that will find ways to trick you and find ways to cause problems down the road. The vast majority of patients with melanoma will actually present with a fairly early stage, highly curable disease, but it's the nuance of who is not going to be that patient that we're still trying to figure out. And our AJCC staging does fairly well, but I don't think that's a a really nuanced enough guideline or nuanced enough protocol to follow to know how to implement the best treatments for these patients. So... To that end, I think one of the gaps is really figuring out a little bit more the biology of melanoma intrinsically and being able to molecularly stage, so to speak, some patients to then know who to bring to bear the most aggressive treatments or who we can dial back some of these very expensive treatments. And even though they're less toxic, they're not non-toxic. So I think that's a really big gap going forward that I would love to see filled. And actually, I think that there's some really good studies looking at that as well.
0: Considering this, uh, we're talking about melanoma, and you mentioned curveballs. I'm going to have to throw you one, right? So, <laughs> so the easiest disease to treat is uh, the one you don't need to treat. And so, how do we do a better job of not getting to the stage where we have to treat this disease at all? We know, you know, sunscreen's helpful. We know that early detection's helpful. How do we get the message out? How do we how do we do a better job of, on the way on the front end? We have all this time and energy on these late stage. of therapies how do we work on the back end and just minimize the numbers
1: yeah that's that's absolutely right i'd say you know the number may vary a little bit but it's well over 90 percent of melanoma we attribute to uv exposure and that in general is sun exposure right so i think the first thing that we can really address is tanning beds and quite frankly making sure that those are better regulated and kind of more information is given to the users of tanning beds to understand what is happening. I am a firm believer that really teens should never be in a tanning bed. Um, obviously, I come from a fairly biased, but I think reasonable perspective on that. Um, and quite frankly, I i don't know, my bias may extend so far as to say I view it very much like there's no good tanning bed, right? So there's no low-risk tanning bed, and I don't think that they should be used. So if we address that, I think that's one point of things. But then it is more informational. So I do remember even when I was a kid, you wouldn't go and put sunscreen all over yourself. and I. If anything, my wife and, and other people I know would actually try and put like baby oil on and get a tan. So it's really that education, I think is is started and improving, but it's to continue to do that in both the primary care office when they may never see a specialist, as well as things like a barber shop. So barbers are constantly looking at a patient's scalp, their upper back and, and neck, And even just knowing that barbers can disseminate some of this information too, we actually find quite a few scalp melanomas from barbers. And so having really community involvement in these kind of processes is
0: hugely important. That's great. Well, I appreciate all the work you're doing for uh, patients with melanoma. You've had some great insights here and I appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure. This concludes this episode of Cancer Advances.